This podcast celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. Zane Asher is a British Nigerian news anchor and author. She currently hosts the network's weekday primetime global news show, One World with Zane Asher. Her memoir, Where the Children Take Us, was published by HarperCollins earlier this month and tells the story of her family's struggle to carry on after her father's unexpected death, providing a handbook for hope when none seems possible. Zane is one of four hugely successful siblings, including her brother, actor Chiwetel Ejiofor, the star of the Oscar winner, 12 Years a Slave. And her older brother, himself an entrepreneur, once remarked that Zane was set for life when she was accepted at Oxford University, noting how she had achieved the unimaginable given their circumstances. He said, there's nothing you can't do now. Zane, we're so excited to have you on Brits and the Big Apple. Welcome to us. Thank you. What show. an occasion. Thank you so much. And I'd love for you to tell us uh, a little bit about your career journey so far and how you came to be in New York. I went to Oxford University and somewhere in my um, second year, maybe third year, this idea of possibly one day moving to America really began to become almost like an obsession, really. Um, in the third year, because I studied French and Spanish, we had to live in those countries. So in my third year, I lived in France and then I actually lived in Mexico. And because obviously Mexico borders the US, I spent a lot of time with my cousins in the US as well. And then sort of just before graduation, I bought a one-way ticket. I had applied to Columbia University for grad school. And there was just something that told me that my future was here. I really can't explain it, but I just knew it. You know, I remember even in my exams at Oxford, some of the practice exams we had, even during the finals, when I put my pen and paper down before everyone else, I would sit and I would daydream about living in New York. That's how I would pass the time. (laughs) You know, time's up in these exams. And these exams are hard. You know, the Oxford graduation exams are very difficult. But I remember finishing one of my essays early, which is, don't know if that's a good sign. And I just daydreamed and I thought about living in New York and I just knew it was meant to be. That's so interesting. And did you have any connections to America at that point? Or was it just that you you had a feeling that that was the place to be? I had a cousin or two cousins that lived in Texas. I had an aunt that lived in Long Island, stayed with for a bit, you know, in the early days. But not really, not really. I mean, you know, you sort of get sucked into that belief that America is this magical place where anything is possible, you know. Um, And it sounds so cliche, but I really believed it. I fell for that cliche hook, hook, line and sinker when I was um, when I was a teenager, when I was 19, 20 or whatever it was. So and how has that cliche worked? It worked out pretty well, actually. Um, you know, I, I had actually always wanted uh, to work in journalism and, um, you know, CNN to me at the time, and obviously there's the BBC, there's so many different outlets, but something about CNN really called cool to me. And, um, you know, I just thought that that was the standard when it came to international journalism. And so, you know, CNN has a London office, you know, we have offices all around the world, but um, working for CNN in America was my dream. And it's sort of a very surreal feeling to have you know your dreams at such a young age actually come true like the people I used to watch at CNN when I was at Oxford are now my co-workers they're people that I go and have lunch with and 
it's, it is, you know, sometimes there's a lot of a pinch me moment. And I'd love to, I'd love to chat a little bit more about your experience as a journalist, but first want to hear a little bit more about your amazing book has just recently been published. Tell us a bit about the book and why you wanted to publish now. Yeah, so the book is um, a tribute to my mother and everything that she sacrificed and everything that she achieved in terms of how she raised us. You know, I always say that my story is a tragedy um, or rather my story has tragedy in it, but it really is not a tragedy at all. Um, It's a celebration and it's a story um, of hope ultimately. The book starts off in September, 1988 and my mother is in the living room and she's waiting for a phone call. She's actually waiting for my dad to call her. My father and my brother were on a long distance road trip and she was expecting a call at a certain time with my dad saying to her, hey, we just landed at the airport, come and pick us up. So she actually got ready, got fully dressed, knowing exactly what time the plane was supposed to land. That time comes and goes and there's no phone call. And then an hour later, there's still no phone call. And, you know, initially, after two or three hours of waiting, she just thought to herself, okay, well, obviously they've missed their flight back home. But then it didn't make sense because obviously, even if you miss your flight, you can still call and say, hey, we missed our flight. But then there was no phone call until the early evening. And suddenly the phone rings around 6, 6.30. And she rushes to answer it, expecting, obviously, that it's my dad. But it's not. It's an extended relative in Nigeria where the road road trip was taking place. It was a father-son road trip in Nigeria. The extended relative, and it's not somebody that my mom knew particularly well, right? So voice basically says, your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead and we don't know which one. I mean, I was so young at the time. I was five years old. My mother was pregnant when she got that phone call. And you can imagine um, how harrowing that phone call is to be a 36-year-old woman pregnant, And she traveled to Nigeria, not knowing if she was going to be burying her husband or her son, but she was clinging on to hope during that time because she sort of felt maybe since the person who made the call doesn't really know what happened, maybe both of them survived. Maybe, Mm. you know, they were just sort of injured in this car accident, which isn't great, but, you know, she just had hoped that both of them were okay. She gets to Nigeria and it turns out that it's my father who had passed away. My brother is in hospital. He only really just managed to survive the accident. And even though there is that silver lining that my brother is okay, and of course, you know, uh, the worst could have happened to him too. Mm. She's, she really isn't able to appreciate that. She's so distraught about having to bury my dad. I always say that even though the book starts with the most painful memory imaginable for us, It is ultimately a positive story because in the book, I pay tribute to my mother, who was a woman who, despite that day in September 1988, despite all that came with being a widowed, single mother, immigrant, you know, not having much money, she fought for us, fought with every fiber of her being to give us a better life. And because of some of her really creative, amazing parenting strategies. My brothers and my sister and I have surpassed every expectation for a family in those circumstances in the 80s. So because of her, I'm an anchor at CNN. Because of her, my brother is an Oscar-nominated actor who was in 12 Years a Slave, the star. My sister is a doctor and my oldest brother is a very successful entrepreneur. And this is really my way of saying thank you to her. And I sort of explain in the book all the sorts of amazing, unlikely things that she did. And so my hope is that it resonates with people 
who, yes, are parents, who are mothers, but also anyone who's gone through trauma. Because even if your father hasn't been killed in a car crash, we've all gone through some degree of trauma in our lives as part of the human experience. I, I want this story to give people hope. Wow. I mean, that's such an incredibly profound experience for all of you. And, and you say you were five years old at the time, which I guess is the point at which you start remembering things and, you know, sort of understanding the world. Can you can you give us a sense of the impact that it had on you, the kind of influence that you drew from your mum, you know, in those early years as well? I only really have maybe a handful of memories of my dad. You know, I remember because initially when we, um, when they were on that father-son road trip in Nigeria, we had, we'd had actually gone to Nigeria as a family because my mum's brother was getting married. But mm. at the end, after the wedding, me, my mum and my oldest brother went back to London and my dad and my uh, and Chiwetel, immediately older brother, went on this father-son road trip. So I have a few memories of that trip. But really, when you're that young, it's so difficult to sort of remember the specifics. So to do this story, especially the first couple of chapters, I had to interview a lot of people in my family, including my mother, who would set time limits on our conversation. She would only be able to talk about it for five, mm. ten at a time because it was so painful obviously my brothers um, extended relatives as well people who were in Nigeria at the time initially when you know we came back to London after the funeral my mother wasn't present at all I mean she would lock herself in her room and scream and cry and wail for hours on the other other side of the door and she wasn't able it was almost as if we didn't have a mother or a father for those first few months she just wasn't able to be present and my brothers kind of went off the rails they had no father figure no direction no routine my oldest brother would leave the house for hours sometimes more than a day not tell anyone where he was going and nobody would ask him you know it was that kind of environment and he ended up getting kicked out of school even though he used to be basically a straight a student that though marked a massive turning point in our lives because my parents really valued education. They had sacrificed everything to move to England after war, after the civil war in Nigeria to give their kids a better life. That was the point. I mean, the only reason why they moved to England was for the educational opportunities. And to see my brother being kicked out of school, that was a big wake up call for my mother. And that's when she began to shift. That's when she sort of came out of her catatonic state and began focusing on how on earth she could get her kids back on track. You know, this is the hand that she'd been dealt. She's now a widow, but she understood that her children needed her and they needed structure. They needed routine. They needed discipline. So one of the things that she did early on, and this is one of my earliest memories of that time, was she asked my teacher for my school syllabus for the year, for the curriculum, and she would go through it and she would figure out what I was going to be learning, you know, in a month or two. And she would teach it to me at home beforehand. So that by the time I learned it in school, I knew it inside and out. I specifically remember my math teachers just being amazed at how intelligent I was. And I wasn't that intelligent. I just um, had learned everything ahead of time with my mother. So the kids would be on their two times table and I already knew my 12, even my 13 times table off by heart at that point. But that really showed me, okay, there is a cause and effect in life in terms of what you put into something is what you get out. I could directly see that my mother teaching me ahead of time at home, you know, the times tables, how to tell time was having a dramatic impact on me in school. And I didn't enjoy school until then. But when school became a place where I received all this praise and all this sort of support and attention, it changed the game for me. I actually loved going to school all of a sudden and I just couldn't 
great to show my teachers just how much I knew, you know. And so, you know, that put me on a completely different path otherwise because I enjoyed rolling up my sleeves. And another memory that I have of her, this is slightly later, is that she would find newspaper clippings of Black success stories in newspapers like The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Times, and she would cut them out and plaster them to our walls. So wow. that we were bombarded with images of people who looked like us that were thriving, that had done incredibly well in their chosen fields. And I just think that's an important lesson for everybody, regardless of what race you are, because whether you are white or black or, you know, from any other region in the world, I just think that everyone has a tape in their mind, sort of limiting beliefs about what they can and can't do. You know, it doesn't have to, doesn't necessarily have to do with race. It's we all sort of are victims of our own limiting beliefs. And she changed our perception of ourselves by doing that, you know, by putting these images of people, especially if they were of African descent or Nigerian or Ghanaian, you know, we would be bombarded with these images. And we began to believe that these people are just like us. If we work hard, like they've obviously worked hard, we can have what they have, you know? And so, yeah, I just think that people need to see examples of people who are like them, who have done phenomenal things with their life. It's, it's a game changer. Wow. So many, so many life lessons. I mean, your mom sounds like an amazing person. How does she feel about the book? What's her, what's her reaction been to it? She was sort of just a bit confused because she didn't really understand that she'd done anything special. She would sort of say to me, well, I don't really get why you're writing a book about me. I've done nothing. I've done nothing that any other mother wouldn't do in in similar circumstances. She really believed that. Now that I'm a mum myself, I don't buy that, you know, because I know myself and I have two kids and I'm married. I'm not a single mum. I have a husband who really is involved with the kids. And so, I mean, he's just as involved as I am. I kind of have a new level of appreciation of just how much she sacrificed. You know, when you're a single mother, my parents owned a pharmacy in Brixton and she would come home from work after 10 hour shifts, make dinner, and then, you know, make sure the boys were on track with homework and what books they were reading, et cetera. And then come to my room and teach me at time, you know, for hours. She would teach it to me until I got it, basically, which was however long it took. You know, she, she was determined to stay there. And no matter how exhausted she was, her pharmacy was uh, at that time being robbed quite frequently. I mean, she was mugged at knife point. Even on those days, she wouldn't really tell us about it. And we'd come back. She'd come to our room and we would still study. I just realized there is something really special about this person that I call my mother. And I just, I wanted to celebrate that. As you say, what a great role model for your kids as well. And you talked about the images that she was putting on your walls of Nigerian men and women to, to spur you on. And as you say, there's a, there's such a profound connection when you can see people who have pioneered the way before you. And, and you know, you, you are one of those role models now in your work. Can you tell me a little bit about what your identity means to you and, and particularly your Nigerian heritage? I'm really interested to get your take on identity and and what that means specifically for you. As cliche as it sounds, representation is so important. There's two things that I would say about identity. There was a woman just in terms of having role models and, and seeing people that look like you, how important that is in that should be in everyone's life. There was a woman named Femi Oke, who was a reporter on the BBC in the late 90s. 
And I would watch her all the time. She was one of the sort of examples of Nigerian success that my mother would encourage me to watch. I would watch her in awe. I just loved seeing how this Nigerian woman was was so sort of charismatic and asked such brilliant questions when she did interviews on TV that I really wanted to know more about her. Cut to several years later, I moved to America and this woman, Femi Oke, is now reporting on CNN. And so I reached out to her. I figured out what the formula was for a CNN email address. And I reached out to her and I didn't really expect to hear back. I mean, she was, in my eyes, a star that spoke to millions of people. I, at that time, was a student. I just graduated from journalism school. I reached out to her and to my surprise, not only did she write me back, but she almost immediately gave me her phone number and told me to call her either that night or that week. And we set up a phone call and we talked and she just gave me invaluable advice about making it in America, making it in the newsroom, what it's like to work at CNN. And so several years later, I eventually called her again. We, we, we kept in touch and she had since left CNN and she was now working in radio. And I told her, Femi, guess what? I have, I have an interview at CNN. And part of the interview involves a screen test and sort of like a semi-audition, but really it's a screen test. And again, she prepared me so much for that. She actually invited me to her radio station and would go through with me what it was like to anchor. I mean, she was huge in my life. Prepared me for, okay, you're going to have an interview with this person. This is what you say. This is what you don't say. This is what the screen test is like. This is how you should prepare for it, et cetera. And when I eventually got the job, I realized just how much of a difference seeing Femi Oke on TV had made in my life. She she wasn't just somebody who helped me. She was somebody who, for whom, or for me rather, seeing her literally changed my life. It absolutely changed the course of my life. I saw her, I believed that I could get there too. And on top of that, she literally helped me get there. And so I just think that, you know, in terms of my culture and what identity means to me, one of the things that I hold dear about Nigeria is this community spirit that we really have. It's this idea that, you know, we are all in it together, that if you win, I win. And I truly believe that that's part of the reason behind Demi Oke helping me, you know, obviously just seeing another Nigerian girl do well would make her proud. You know, I always sort of share with people, one of the scenes that I have in the book that I explain to people is that when I got accepted into Oxford, there was a party thrown in my honor in my village, 4,000 miles away. And people were drinking into the night. They were dancing on top of cars. And I remember sitting there when my mother was telling me this, that people that I'd never met before could be so happy to see me do well. I'd never experienced anything like that. I'm not saying that Brits are not like that. I have plenty of friends who are super happy for me, but I've never experienced somebody actually who had never even shaken my hand throwing a party because something amazing happened in my life, not theirs. That community spirit, that sort of um, feeling of togetherness that Nigeria has is everything for identity. And one of the other things that I think is really interesting in my culture is that when people get married, newlyweds, they're appointed what's known as marriage sponsors. And what that means is they're appointed another couple who have said, who have, for example, been married for, let's say 30 or 40 years 
to help them navigate married life, to talk with them about the ups and downs of married life. This is what, these are the sorts of things you should watch out for. These are some of the difficulties about being married, especially newly. Here's what to watch out for when you give birth for the first time as, as a newly married couple. I guess in a way, their version of therapy, this idea of another sort of senior couple in the community who've been married for a lot longer, guiding the newlyweds through married life, you know? And I just find that fascinating because that community spirit is probably the one thing that I admire the most about Nigerian culture. That's such an amazing concept. Because Nigeria has lots of different tribes and my tribe is the Igbo tribe. So I'm still trying to figure out whether all the tribes have it or if it's my tribe specifically. Completely resonate with your point around needing to see people on TV around you. The British consulate did a piece of work a couple of years ago with the Gina Davis Institute for Film and TV, where actually we looked at the importance of women and girls in STEM on children's TV and, and, and had came up with, and it's obviously not rocket science, exactly the same conclusions. And they've got an amazing motto, if she can see it, she can be it, which is exactly what you're, what you're saying as well. It's so important. You know, representation, I think, in our society exists on a sort of macro level. We all know the importance of role models. What my mother did for us that I think was really unique is that it it was probably, I I imagine, I'm just sort of putting myself in her shoes, quite hard for her that time to start tracking down, you know, people that could serve as role models to us. I mean, we lived in West Norwood, you know, she had a pharmacy in Brixton that she was running herself. She was working, you know, 10 hour shifts at this pharmacy. Just the idea that a newspaper clipping, being aware that we all have that tape, you know, and our, and your children have that tape, you know, we all do. And just finding creative ways beyond just sort of real role models that you can see and speak to, creative ways in a newspaper clipping or in uh, watching Femi Oke on TV, that that would have also an enormous impact on us. I think I, I think it was genius. And you are a role model on TV now yourself. Tell us what it's like to have your own show. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. And one of the things I'm most proud of is because it's my show, I obviously get to decide along with the producers on the content, on the content. And one of the things that we focus on is also representation. My show is called One World with Zayn Asher. And the reason why it's called One World is because this is a show where every region, every continent has an equal seat at the global table. It can be quite difficult if you are from a part of the world that is not considered the center to see images of people that look like you or to hear your stories being told on national television. All sort of mainstream media falls into the trap of the biggest stories coming out of the US and of course Europe. And Africa is a continent that has been neglected, as we all know, to call a spade a spade. The goal of my show is to really try in some small way to right that wrong and to really level the playing field in terms of news coverage and also not to fall into the trap of stereotypical African stories of war, poverty, famine, and to sort of show the just how rich, how many sort of rich cultures there are, the dynamic narratives there are, and how many people, including entrepreneurship, for example, how many people there are that, that are doing really interesting things. You know, Nigeria has a space program, but when it's covered when that country's covered in the news it's usually about either corruption or kidnapping which don't get me wrong it's important to cover that those stories as well 
but you have to kind of cover the good and the bad, not just the bad. And so that's what our show tries to do. And that's something that I'm really proud of. And and we've talked a little bit about this in your book, but I guess tying your experience, your life experiences through your book to your experiences in your career, can you can you give me your kind of life lessons or your what are the messages that make up Zane Asher? Oh, that's so interesting. One of the things that I really try to focus on in my life now, and I guess this is a trickle down message from my mother. One message is um, aside from representation, and obviously we've talked about that and how important that is, and also how important it is to pay it forward. I understand that I'm in a position now where I have to also uh, remember what I've been given, remember all the different people that who have helped me, including Femi Oke. It is now my turn to pay it forward. And I'm in a position where I can sort of use my sphere of influence as a woman, as a black woman to help others. So for example, somebody is interning at CNN. If somebody reaches out to me out of the blue, without any sort of knowledge of me or really connection to me whatsoever, it is absolutely incumbent on me to pay it forward, especially knowing that Femi OK did that same thing for me. It's very tempting when you get an email from a stranger, especially given how full my inbox is every single day covering the news, to sort of be like, okay, either delete it, ignore it, or I'll get back to that person, but then you get sidetracked. But you don't realize how in some small way, even just a response or one email back, even through a Facebook message can change somebody else's life. And I'm very aware of that now. And I, and I wasn't before. Um, I'm very aware that I'm now in a position where just an email from me, just a little bit of career advice can change another person's life. In terms of career success, representation and being a role model is important just as a human being. But when it comes to career, probably the most important philosophy for me now is something that my mother taught me when I was very young, which was what she called the eight hour rule. And this is something I say to everybody who comes to me and who asks me for advice about making it in any profession. I think these lessons really apply to anyone. My mother would make us divide our day into three equal parts. So for example, it's obviously 24 hours in a day and she would sort of make us divided into three equal parts of eight hours each. And she would say to us, okay, right, eight hours to be spent sleeping, eight hours to be spent in school. And the last eight hours of your day should be spent working towards your dreams. And, you know, her whole philosophy was that everybody generally, you know, sleeps for eight hours. Everybody generally is at work for eight hours. You know, some people have more than one job, which is of course, then, you know, they're at work for a lot longer than eight hours. But if you only have one job, generally you're in the office or at whatever your workplace is, your place of work is for eight, maybe nine hours. She would really sort of drill it into us that the only real advantage you have in life is how you spend the last eight hours of your day. That is the only thing that can separate one person from the next. And so I've been asked multiple times, well, you know, what do I, how do I make it if I don't have your mom? And what I think that question means is, can a person do for themselves, what my mother did for us? And the answer is absolutely yes. You know, how you spend your spare time is hugely important, you know, and then also with representation, what my mother did was changing limiting beliefs by changing the perception we have of ourselves. So if you focus on changing the perception you have of yourself and also really being deliberate about how you spend your spare time, I think that those two things can move mountains. 
I love that. What an amazing set of messages to end on. Zane, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on your book. What an inspiration your mother is. And thank you for helping us try and make sense of the world on a daily basis as well. Thank you so much, Hannah. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.